Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are the old world, picturesque shores of Europe calling you? Set sail on an adventure with Avalon Waterways. Enjoy an elevated cruising experience. Avalon Waterways offers smaller ships, bigger experiences with fewer people and more of, well, everything good about river cruising. Don't just dream about quaint towns and cobblestone villages. See them for yourself and make lasting memories. Discover limited time offers today at avalonwaterways.com. Hello, and welcome to the Psychology Podcast with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Each episode will feature a new guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Hopefully, we'll also provide a glimpse into human possibility. Thanks for listening and enjoy the podcast. Today, I'm really excited to have Brad Stolberg on the show. Brad researches, writes, and speaks about health and the science of human performance. He's a columnist with Outside Magazine and New York Magazine, and he's also written for the Los Angeles Times, Runner's World, Forbes, NPR, and the Harvard Public Health Review. Thanks for chatting with me today, Brad. Hey, Scott. Great to be here. So you write about a lot of stuff relating to uh, mastery and performance, high performance, and sort of how to get the best reach your goals. So you write about a lot of stuff. So let's start with one of your most recent articles on how exercise can shape you far beyond the benefits of just the physical, right? Yeah, exactly. So if you could talk a little bit about that, what does the latest research show about the benefits of exercise? Yeah, totally. So it's a topic that really intrigues me. And and I approach this, I guess, empirically first, because it's something that I've lived So I noticed that when I started really pushing myself hard in in training in endurance sports, in addition to all of the kind of traditionally spoken about physiological benefits of exercise, so weight management, blood sugar, hopefully it will help me, you know, avoid osteoporosis in the future. I noticed that everything else in my life that otherwise might have stressed me out or put me in a rut or caused great challenge, everything just kind of became easier when I was training really hard physically. And I'd say I probably first had this realization. I jotted it down in a journal maybe, I don't know, five, six years ago. I was working at a consulting firm where my days were pretty stressful and I started getting really into endurance sports and things just got easier, even though nothing substantially changed about the work itself. So it's something I've lived for the past decade now, and or I guess half a decade maybe, but at least the past five to 10 years. 
and started researching it now in, in a writing capacity. And turns out there's, I wouldn't say like a huge body of evidence, but yeah, there's some evidence that does show that pushing yourself physically can kind of translate into other pursuits and, and not just improves your physical fitness, but at the risk of sounding cliche, it also kind of improves your life fitness. Are there certain kinds of exercise that are better than others? No, you know, that was the interesting thing. I mean, again, the, the studies generally just look at aerobic exercise. So they look at individuals that went from hardly running at all to taking up running. And I think in one study, they also could have used other machines. So like stair climbers, elliptical trainers and such. But I think the real benefit is coming from you're choosing to do something that is hard and uncomfortable. And it's like I say in the article, you're practicing being comfortable in an uncomfortable situation. Right. Yeah, you do talk about that a lot. So it is uncomfortable pushing yourself to the physical extremes. And you also have described it as like practicing suffering. So is that something, is that like a muscle suffering, like a muscle you can practice? You know, I, I don't know. It's actually, I went back and forth with my editor on whether or not to use the word suffering. And we did because I tend to not love to use that word because there's also the kind of suffering of, of a terrible health diagnosis and spiritual suffering and all that comes with it. So this is purely the notion of your body telling you this really, really hurts, your mind telling you this is really hard, I want to stop, and you making the choice to continue to push yourself and continue to endure that pain and, and discomfort. So that's what I mean by suffering. And you know, my experience, and again, some emerging evidence sites that, yeah, it probably is a muscle that can be trained. Or at least your capacity to endure suffering. So you train for marathons, is that right? Yeah, I dabbled in triathlons and, and do currently I'm running marathons, yes. Yeah, is that like, you know, do you think, like, how does talent play a role in there? Like, could anyone learn how to run a marathon? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I'm going to... I'm gonna Even quote, me? Oh, totally, Scott. I'm really? going to quote a good, a good friend and mentor. His name's Mike Joyner. He's over at the Mayo Clinic and, and has a great lab on human performance. And he and I have literally, I'm not exaggerating, spent hours talking about nature versus nurture. And what Mike says is that it's very, very hard to be world-class at anything, but most people can become pretty good at most things. And I think marathon running falls into that category. So you don't have to be world-class to finish a marathon. Correct. I really think that with the right attitude and a decent training plan, anyone can run a marathon. So if I aim for, if my goal is to get last place in a marathon, like how hard work is that to like go through? Like what do I have to do to uh, be able to at least just complete it? Well, I mean, you have to run. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, can I, is there a time limit? No. So, oh, you're talking about like the actual like logistics of marathons. Yeah. So most marathons have cutoffs, but they're quite slow. I mean, you, I don't know off the top of my head what they are, but you could probably find a marathon where you could walk the whole thing. That's what I'm wondering. Can you walk it? Yeah. And come in under a time limit. You probably could, but I mean, if you walked 26 miles before. Oh, I've not even walked a mile before. Now, that's not true. I'm sure you have. No, but, I have. I'm joking. <laughs> but um, 26 miles, like it's tough to walk 26 miles. But yeah, I mean, marathons have, have quite generous time cutoffs. And, you know, it's something that I always come back to not to get too far off on a tangent with sports is that even though I cover elite athletes and I'm kind of roped up into that circle, I myself am so far from an elite athlete. And yeah. I think being around them and, and covering them and, and getting to know them, it's made me realize just how slow I am. But that doesn't mean that you can't reap all the benefits of pushing yourself physically and exercise and setting goals. I guess what I'm getting is I really try to avoid it. It's fun to joke about, but an elitist attitude. Like I think that the 
five and a half or six hour marathon finisher it has just as much to be proud of as the two and a half hour finisher. Wow. So you can run 26 miles in one go? Yeah, I can. A lot wow. of people can. Wow. So what's your, what are your cholesterol levels? You know, I don't know them off the top of my head. I haven't gotten, uh, I haven't gotten my blood work done in quite a while. I've got kind of an old school physician that is of the mindset that if you're not symptomatic, there's no real need to do blood work. Sounds like you're drinking a protein shake over there. <laughs> Water bottle. <laughs> I'm imagining you like dosing up on uh, your protein and your creatine. So you've also read about how big goals can backfire. So what have you learned from Olympian athletes about goals, goal setting? Yeah, I guess in a nutshell, goal setting is really important. And it's really important to have goals and they should act as a North Star and, and something to shoot for. But focusing too much on any one goal can be detrimental to performance and fulfillment and health and well-being. It can really set you up for failure. The reason that I ended up covering this topic was at the Olympic trials, which is the event to see who makes the Olympic team, a runner named Brenda Martinez, who uh, runs the 800, which is two laps around the track, a, a very quick race. She was in prime position to qualify for the Olympic team. And uh, Brenda's 28 years old. I mean, this is something that she's been working towards since she was probably 10. And the runner behind her lost her footing, fell forward into Brenda, causing Brenda to trip and fall. Whoops. Right. A big whoops. And that was it. I mean, she got passed by, I think, like five or six gals. And in a, in a race that short, there's no way you're going to catch up. And I mean, there's 12 years of training in, in Olympic dreams and her goal to make the Olympics in, in her marquee race. Why Kean and Brenda is she was also registered to run the 1500, which is a race that is still pretty quick. I mean, you can do the math. It's pretty easy, almost twice as long. But it's not her marquee event. She's not nearly as good at it. And she told me that if she wouldn't have had the incident in the 800, she wouldn't have even you know participated in the 1500. So you can imagine, right, after getting tripped up and kind of missing out on your dream, you could be pretty down, distraught, and devastated. And she just got right back on her grind, went on to win three races in six days, and ended up qualifying in the 1500 to go to the Olympics and ended up going to the Olympics. Nice. So I interviewed her for Outside Magazine just about how she did it. And she kept on coming back to this notion of focusing on the process and kind of letting go of her goal, which was to make the Olympics in that marquee event of hers, the 800, and just going back to, well, what do I have to do to run my best over the next week and approaching each action as its own thing? And, and that's what got her through the week. And I just thought there was such a powerful message in that that applies well beyond sports. Yeah. And you also come up with a bunch of lessons for uh, what's the problem with goals in the first place, as opposed to the process. And you actually list a bunch of things. Can you talk about some of them? Yeah. You know, again, I don't want to say that you shouldn't set goals. I think setting goals are important. I think this happens when you become too attached to some kind of end results is that, well, first off, you can relinquish your sense of self-worth to things that are outside of your control. So you might really, really want to get promoted and you might be doing everything right, but then your boss has a medical incident and has to take leave or retire. Mm. You might have done everything perfectly to train for your Ironman triathlon but it storms that day, or you get a flat tire on the bike. You might write what you think is the perfect novel, and the publishing house disagrees. Now, do these things make you a failure? Well, I mean, I guess it depends on how you look at it, right? If you're only attached to whether or not you accomplish the goal, then they do. 
But if you are attached to more of the process and did you get better in the process of actually doing the work itself, then it's a whole different psychological framework that you're operating from. Right. Or if you tie it to your self-worth. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. That seems quite right. And you, you do see a lot of people, it sounds like a positive psychology distinction between harmonious and obsessive passion that people in the field of positive psychology study. Have you ever linked it to that, that distinction? Yeah. So I actually, I think I mentioned that a little bit later on in the article. So I, I have. I know I set you up. Yeah. <laughs> for that and, question. Um, thank you, Scott. <laughs> appreciate welcome. it always. <laughs> And yeah, it's very similar. There's an interesting study looking at elite athletes. The researchers look at, you know, they qualify them as either showing more harmonious passion or more obsessive passion. And those in the obsessive passion bucket end up being much more likely to cheat, um, which I thought it was interesting. And it, it makes sense. And again, like I haven't seen studies, but I'd have to imagine that the same thing is true outside of sports. So like in the corporate world, my guess is if people are just focused on results, they're probably the ones that are more likely to, to cross the slippery slope into unethical behavior. Yeah, no, I would expect that too. Well, that's a neat finding. I, I haven't seen that. I haven't seen that in the literature, the cheating one. I've seen, you know, stress uh, and burnout and things of that nature, but not cheating. So that's really interesting. So in your other work that you've written about, you've written about the importance of something you call progressive overload. Or do you call it or does someone else call it that? Uh, well, myself and someone else. So I, I did not come up with that term. It's an exercise science term. Okay, progressive overload. So how is that better than going to the gym? And, you know, because I've been taught that I'm supposed to go to the gym and do like a different exercise to confuse my muscles and excite my muscles to striving for novelty. But you're saying that's, that's not necessarily the best way to go. Progressive overload might be better? Yeah, I mean, I think it depends on what your goals are. So if your goals are just to get to the gym and to get your heart rate up and to, to sweat, then pretty much anything is better than doing nothing. So go do different classes and different exercises. I mean, obviously be, be safe about it, but yeah, just go to the gym and sweat. But if you want to actually improve at a specific discipline, so it might be weightlifting, you might want to get better at a specific sport like running, rowing, a specific skill like squatting you really have to kind of set up a plan to focus on mastering that particular capability. I guess I'd play it back to you, right, Scott? Like if you approached your work and instead of, you know, focusing on psychology, one day you read about astronomy and one day you read about physics and another day you read about business and you had real, no real path, you know, do you think that that would really lead to progression in your intellect? Right. Not in a unified intellect, but Right. I might see unexpected connections and that I wouldn't have seen before. I mean, it's possible. But yeah, no, I, I get your point for sure. So yeah, so progressive overload. Again, you know, it's kind of a common theme in a lot of these stories I end up doing for New York Magazine is I see something in athletics and then there's a fair amount of applicability elsewhere. So the notion of progressive overload is that to get better at something, you have to be fairly specific. So if I want to make my bicep stronger, I have to do exercises that stress my bicep. And after I stress it, I have to let it rest and recover. And if I apply too much stress, I'm going to hurt my arm. If I don't recover, I'm going to hurt my arm. But if I don't stress it enough, I'm not going to grow. Nothing's going to happen. So it's operating in this cycle of stress something, let it rest and recover. That's when growth occurs. Stress it a little bit more, let it rest and recover. More growth occurs, et cetera, et cetera. 
And I thought that, you know, it's a really neat framework to look at, you know, again, well beyond the gym and well beyond sports progressing in other realms as well. No, yeah, that does make sense. So progressive overload, who, who else calls it that? You know, I don't know where the term initially came from. It's widely known amongst, I mean, really just across the board in athletics. So weightlifting, endurance sports, pretty much any strength and conditioning coach you'd speak with would probably be familiar with the term. Right on, right on. So now I'll sound like I, uh, I'm, a, I'm a sporty person, like I know what I'm talking about. Yeah, sometimes it's called periodization as well. Oh, wow. That sounds fancy too. Yeah, giving you two fancy terms to throw around. Good, uh, yeah, athlete cocktail parties. Thank you. <laughs> but um, it can be boring, you know, and that's the thing that I wrote in yeah. piece. It right because it, like you said, it, it's a lot more fun to do something different and to kind of chase the latest and greatest exercise routine. And I think that society really caters to that. If you were to read health and fitness magazines, and I'm somewhat complicit because I write for them, you'd think that it makes the most sense to change things up every month because every new magazine has this new plan that's the secret to fitness. When in fact, you'd probably be better off, you know, staying on the same path. Mm. No, that makes sense. And purpose, is that also tied up with values? Yeah, I think so. And the research bears out that it's tied up with core values. So again, this was just an interesting linkage between kind of my two worlds of of sport and I guess what you might want to call like the academic or intellectual realm. So for the piece, I interviewed a, a strength and conditioning coach named Brett Bartholomew. He works with all the top NFL, I shouldn't say all, but many of the top NFL football players. And he trains their bodies, but he also works with them on their mindset. And and he really preaches the importance of purpose and reflecting on your purpose and always asking why you're doing something and and what am I trying to achieve and what are my values? I thought that was interesting because I know of some other literature out of public health that shows that if you have an individual reaffirm his or her core values, they're more likely to be successful in hard health behavior changes. So things like quitting smoking or eating healthier. So it seems, and and I don't know the mechanism, but it seems that there's something about reaffirming your core values, again, closely linked to purpose, in being thoughtful and reflective and perhaps being able to stay the course when it's hard. Hmm. Yeah, I like that link. That does seem to apply to a lot of things like uh, grit for anything as well. Yeah. Keep you gritty. Yeah, I think so. I mean, something that I learned in writing that story is really just the power of asking why, right? Like, why am I doing something? And it seems so basic, but I think that like in my own life, if I were to do that more often, I'd probably be a lot happier, more productive. I think so. I think, and it sounds like you do try to do it in your own life. Yeah, I, I try. It doesn't mean I'm successful. You wrote yeah. it, you wrote in an email to me. Also good stuff because I try and struggle to practice what I preach. In a sense, it can be easier to write about these things and to hold yourself accountable to living them. So you do, you do give this a go. So yeah, there's like a whole movement of like self-experimentation. Like um, I've had some other guests on the show who are big into self-experimentation, like AJ Jacobs and Tim Ferriss. Yeah, I've, I've listened to some of those podcasts. Right on. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, Scott, I think that like it's a mix of two things, right? It's it's just downright fun to do some of the self-experimentation. And then um, I think it livens up the writing, or at least it feels like to me, it makes it a little bit easier to write about this stuff if I'm also trying it out and seeing how it impacts me. What I don't ever do, and, and it annoys me when some people do, is you know, end of one experiments where I try something and because I have a result, therefore, this science says that this works. So I guess that sometimes I, I maybe I operate in the opposite direction as I look to see 
where there's been a meta-analysis or at least a study with a decent sample size, and then I go try that thing. <laughs> right. Well, that's great. I mean, that's science personal experimentation. Exactly. Yeah, very interesting. Very interesting angle to it. A unique niche there that you have. Okay, so um, you've also talked about how stress is stress. Is that like sometimes a cigar is a cigar? Say more. I've never heard that. <laughs> Freud said sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. Like sometimes we make a lot more, we project all sorts of things when we don't really see the things for what they are. Ah, I see. Yeah, I guess you could say it's it's similar in nature. Yes. So, you know, when I say stress is stress, and, and this story was, was written for Outside Magazine, it's about the notion that, again, coming, I'll make a nice tie here. So coming back to progressive overload, right? How to get better physiologically and athletically is you want to stress your body and then let it recover. And a lot of athletes, particular amateur athletes, professionals are very good about recovery, but amateurs aren't great about recovery. So they'll go out and they'll do a really, really hard workout. And then they'll run out the door to work. They'll forget to eat breakfast. They'll get to work. They'll be in a super stressful situation, whether it's like a big high stakes meeting or cranking on a memo on deadline. And even though they're no longer, you know, running those six minute miles, their body is still totally going for it. And what the research bears and what lots of the experts that are applying this have found is that the body can't really differentiate very well between physical and psychological stress. So even though your workout's end and you should be recovering, your body is still in stress mode. Again, this, this is something that doesn't really affect professional athletes. It's, it's one of the separating factors, I think, between amateurs and professionals is professionals really know how to recover, whereas amateur athletes often just operate in kind of a continuous cycle of stress. Continuous cycle of stress. Wow. I made that up. But. That doesn't sound like uh, something I want to be in. Right. <laughs> I don't want to be in that. I want to get out of that cycle. It just, yeah, the, the, that can really, these things can like perpetuate itself like dominoes. Yeah. I mean, I think so. When I say stress, I guess I, I should clarify. I'm coming at it firstly in this instance, how it will be spoken about in exercise science. So stress is just simply something that is exerting a challenge on you. So stress doesn't necessarily need to be a fight with your spouse or a fight with your boss, but it means that I guess in a workplace setting, you're kind of, your shoulders are up, you're cranking on a demo or a memo, you feel some sense of urgency. Whereas rest and recovery, you know, the, the apex of that is sleep, but it's more of a relaxing state. Yeah. I thought something really interesting from that article was a quote by Keely, K-I-E-L-Y, who said, you definitely want to trigger a stress response. It's the key to growth. Well, that's really interesting. That's like similar to like the post-traumatic growth literature in positive psychology that, that we, um, we grow from our uh, getting meaning from our trauma or triggering that response and then learning how to overcome it makes us more resilient. But you say that that's only good, you know, activating the stress response is only good for growth if it's acute. What does that mean? Yeah. So love that quote as well. I'm glad that you pulled it out. So acute means that it happens, there's a stress, and then it ends, and then you can shift into a more restful state. So again, giving like a very, a very extreme example, in sports, it would be if you just constantly trained really, really, really hard and never stopped, right, you'd get hurt or you'd burn out, like something bad would inevitably happen. Mm -hmm. So you need to keep the stress rather acute. If you train really, really hard for two hours and then have that protein shake and relax and allow your body to calm down, 
then that stress can precipitate growth. Is it good to drink protein right after your workout? Oh, man, you, you, I should just sign you up for some personal training. I mean, it depends, right? Context. Do you want to be my personal trainer? I'd love to. Where do you live? Uh, I live in Oakland, California, so it'd be tough. But uh, we could do it over Skype. Interesting, interesting. Maybe you can be my life coach. No, I think you could be mine. Be <laughs> <afraid>. <laughs> yeah, sorry, go on. No, where were we? My memory stinks. Um, <laughs> so... Yeah, stress is stress and, and, oh, acute. So yeah, I I think that the research bears out in physiology. So again, I can only speak to the research that I know is that you only grow from stress, from physiological stress, if it's followed with recovery. Mm. I think some of the more interesting work in this field is there have been a couple of studies that show that in um, athletes that are still in school, Mm -hmm. uh, like in collegiate athletes per se, that injuries go up during exam time. Mm which kind of support, I mean, again, it's correlation, but it supports the hypothesis that, you know, if exam time is stressful cognitively. So if you go from a really hard physical practice, but then you're nervous about exams or you're studying really hard or you're staying up at night, your body doesn't ever really get a chance to recover and you're more susceptible to an injury. Hmm. That's very interesting. Yeah. So it's, uh, so I think there's some practical implications there, right? So how can you optimize your recovery then? What are some practical takeaways there? So I think the most important thing, one, I shouldn't say the most, one of the most important things I've learned in all my research and reporting is just the importance of sleep for everything. This isn't just for, for optimizing your physical recovery, also for optimizing your mental, your emotional, just recovery. I've kind of come around to saying that sleep is one of the most productive things that you can do, period. You know, listeners, I hate to say it, but if you're listening to this and it's late at night and we're looking like at the difference between six and a half or seven hours of sleep, like go to sleep and that'll be like the most value this podcast can give you. Sleep is really important. Um, Do you just take another yeah. sip of your protein shake? So, so sleep is important. Yeah. Now I've got, I've got, if only we could do this on video, you're making me, then people would actually like see me and what I look like and be like, why is this guy talking about sports? <laughs> well, no, you look sporty to me when I just saw you. Yeah, maybe. It's because I have a hat on. The hat lies. Oh, okay. Okay. To me, you I mean, compared to me, you look very sporty. <laughs> right. I mean, that's what I was kind of saying a little while ago, right? It's it's all relative. And it's been super humbling being able to have these conversations with like the world's best performers, because I don't want to say that I had an ego, but maybe three years ago before I started doing this kind of reporting, I probably thought I was a better athlete than I was. Yeah. And it's very, very humbling. And, you know, I'm not a good athlete at all compared to them. So who am I to look at someone that is slower than me and say that they're not good? I mean, I think that a lot of the pros will say the same thing. And that's like, that's one of, without getting too esoteric here, I think that's the beauty of sport is that, you know, you're really competing against yourself. I mean, what, yeah, what are your own personal goals? I mean, you're not trying to be an elite athlete, right? You're just trying to be healthy. Yeah, I'm trying to be healthy and get better. You know, one of the reasons that I love running is because it's, it's, and I guess it's probably now that I think about it, one of the reasons that I I gravitate towards writing, it's like a craft in the sense that it's just you and running. And it's a very honest, objective measure of whether you succeed or fail, right? Like you either get faster or you can run a longer distance. Mm -hmm. And to me, there's something very gratifying about having that kind of objective feedback that I think kind of get, get hooked me. Yeah, yeah. Everyone's quantifying everything now, but that seems to be a good way to reach your goals. Yeah, and just kind of fulfillment, right? Like, yeah. I, I got started in running, like I said, after school when I started working, and I had a corporate job in consulting. I mean, 
but I think that we did a lot of good and a lot of that good was very subjective in nature, right? So like in consulting, does the client actually do what you say? Is it based on politics at the organization that you're consulting to? Like there are so many things in between the work that you did and an outcome that it's very, very hard to say like, oh, I did a good job. Mm-hmm. Whereas if I went on a run, it's like, I ran five miles today. That was a half a mile more than yesterday. Like I got better. And I think that's really gratifying to me. Mm, this does sound very personally satisfying. Is there yeah. anything else you wanted to add to this interview today? No, I mean, I think that, that this has been a, a really, really good conversation. I guess the kind of takeaway, right? And what I'd say that my beat is, is that there's so much, and I know that you are, you know, Mr. Creative over there. So I'm preaching to the choir, but I think that we often get caught up in very siloed thinking and kind of stuck in our own narrow lane and in our domain. But there's so many commonalities across domains and and slightly nuanced implementation of different concepts that, you know, you can pull from athletics and, and apply something into the business world. You can pull something from the business world and apply it into athletics. And I guess that's kind of my mission with writing is to try to surface some of these things to make people think a little bit differently. Good stuff, Brad. Well, thanks for uh, the good writing you do and bringing all the science to make it accessible to people. Yeah, thanks so much, Scott. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for listening to the Psychology Podcast with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman. I hope you found this episode just as thought-provoking and interesting as I did. If you'd like to read the show notes for this episode or hear past episodes, you can visit thepsychologypodcast.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's betterhelp.com. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and two-door cinema club. See new things. Try new things. Go back centuries while living in the moment. Forge new paths while discovering old ones. Pedal, paddle, and paint while trekking, tasting, and tailoring experiences that transform you into a better version of yourself. Immerse yourself in the world by activating your mind, your heart, and your body on a river cruise exclusively from Avalon. Avalon Waterways. Save with limited time offers at AvalonWaterways.com. Avalon is cruising. Elevated.